Hello there. This is How to Murder Time, a podcast about books and things. Hello, everybody. Hello. We're supposed Watcher. to say hello here. Yes, say, say hello here. So, yeah, I, mean, I need to get better at distributing the scripts. Hello. <laughs> yeah, it's a book one again. We've, uh, I think it, there was a bank holiday or something, so I'm terribly confused as to how long it was since last we were here. But, a month. Um, yes, this time we're doing The Graveyard Book by Neil Gaiman. This was the winner in, oh, God, I've lost my notes. Uh, great start. 2009. 2009. There we go. Um, yes. Do you want me to read the back of the book? Make, uh, it's just, that's always, always a good bit. If, okay. Uh, if we want a unrealistic version of the book then yes <laughs> i begin to think these aren't written by the author uh, nobody owens known to his friends as bod is a normal boy he would be completely normal if he didn't live in a graveyard being raised and educated by ghosts there are dangers and adventures for bod in the graveyard but it is in the land of the living that the real danger lurks for it is there that the man jack lives and he has already killed bod's family a deliciously dark masterwork by best-selling author neil gaiman with illustrations by award-winning chris riddell yeah, there you go. So you can it, see why the guy that wrote that doesn't write novels for a living. He writes the <laughs> blurbs at the back I of the book. I don't mind that so much. So I just <laughs> hope that whoever's written the blurb on the back has actually read the book. I think that's probably important, but I suspect less important than I think it is, that line of work. Anyway, whose pick was this? Mine. Hey, there we go. And, yeah. Um, and and what, why, why did we pick this one? It was short and the last one was long. <laughs> That was one of the main reasons. Okay, I the other something. reason was, I, I like Neil Gaiman's writing, mm, and mm. I haven't read this in a very long time. And as far as I could remember, I liked it, but that was about all I remembered about it. Yeah, I'd never come across this one before. I mean, uh, as far as I know, he's won twice. He, I think in previous years, I forget which year, he'd won with American Gods, um, which I had read, and is a bit, bit much more of a doorstopper and a, much more of a grown-up sort of thing. This is very much a kid's book. There's it no is. getting away from it at all. Um, and yeah, I quite enjoyed the, the, the overall pacing of it. Quite light, quite, in, quite engaging. I think that, that, that sentence explains part of the problem, is that I like this book, despite the fact that it's children's book. Yes, Look, yeah. Good children's books are really, really good books. Well, and this is a good children's book. Perhaps. And I love Winnie the Pooh and have reread it many more times than I have Hyperion, for instance. <laughs> and I'm not going to use that as a, you know, to beat you Keep over the head with every yes, time. Yes. But there are many, many books that are you know, high quality that I don't read as much as I do children's books. I still I read like quite a bit of young books. adult fiction that I've had for decades. I still I'm, go back to some now and then. I mean, yeah, I suppose that does sort of say more about me than, than the book. Yeah, my sort of parochial nature and pigeonholing and so on. from Neil Gaiman uh, when he won the Newbery Medal because this won a lot of awards. Yeah, this, this one, one, the here, the one the I got here says book. it won the Carnegie Medal as well it in 2010. The British Carnegie Medal and the American Newbery Medal which are both for children's books. It's the first time the same work has won both. Uh, and he, what he, he sort of said in his acceptance speech it, it was as if some people believed there was a divide between the books that you were permitted to enjoy and those that were good for you. And uh, I was expected yeah. to choose sides. We were all expected to choose sides and I didn't believe it. I still don't. I was and still am on the side of books you love. And I think it, you, you shouldn't have to say, is it a great book? Is it a good book? Or is it an enjoyable book? Mm, yeah, or, or work to some assumption that there's a kind of educational remit for anything designed for mm -hmm. children, I suppose. Yeah, this is this is just a fun, relatively lighthearted read. I say relatively lighthearted because there's a fair bit of sort of stark and, and grim imagery throughout the book. I mean, it is a it's, children's book after all. <laughs> well, quite. I don't know. I did look it up actually on Amazon. Just a, uh, I think the Literary Times give it a reading age of nine to eleven. So I think I don't know if that's necessarily who it was pitched at, but that's what. Uh, 
that's what experts recommend in terms of just giving the book to a kid to, to enjoy for themselves. I can't really see this being a sort of bedtime stories with a five-year-old type of well, thing. I did see a report by someone who said that they were, they'd been trying to get their child to sort of start to listen to audiobooks in the car, mm. and they, they then put this on, and their child was four. And uh, and they loved this book, the the story about the the boy in the graveyard. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think four may be a little young for most people, though. Mm-hmm. So how did you get on then, John? Given the reading age of eleven, I uh, I think it's possibly my level when it comes to Hugo <laughs> books because I also really You're enjoyed right Harry the big Potter. Words. Yeah, um, it is odd. I, you know, we, we did the, the last two books which I think I really enjoyed have been kids' books, and there's probably only two books in the entire Hugo slate which were kids' books. So we're talking about the Harry Potter and the, was it Goblet of Fire or the Prisoner of something? Or, oh, it was uh, Goblet of Fire, wasn't it? Yeah, Goblet we did that. Fire, I remember. Yeah. I was there. I remember now. Yes, <laughs> yes. And, and there's something about you know, well-written children's books mm. uh, tend to be much better with language with just general descriptions and pacing and everything than some of the other books which tend to win yeah yeah well i suppose if you're writing for children there's uh, yeah obviously you know the needle gaming quote notwithstanding there's a certain need for clarity and, and yeah. directness which often gets lost i'll be the first needed. to be hyperion went all over the place yeah. a lot of the time but yeah. i there, quite enjoyed that aspect of it but there's a discipline and hyperion does did not have that discipline. Yeah, and yeah, I think well, a lot of the other books we've yes. read may not have. You know, they, they've all been sort They'd of be longer indulgent. than they needed to be. Yeah. Sometimes having an entire third at the back of the book where it just goes off and does random stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah it, it, kids' books, I think, are really are underestimated as just exactly how good they are. If you look at all the sort of books that people remember, you got stuff like... Um, also, Charlie the Chocolate Factory and all of his books. Mm, a lot of the Roald Dahl stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they're all incredibly well-crafted things which sort of live on a lot longer than their contemporary books. And I imagine kids kids are probably quite brutal critics when it comes to this sort of stuff as well. I mean, when you're sort of 9 to 11, you don't really feel the need to persevere on through it because you think you need to know what you know you know it's a worthy endeavor to read this book like many of the hugo winners i guess you know if they don't like it they're going to drop it and they won't sell so presumably you you yeah, know yeah. you're either a very good kids writer or you don't sell any books in that in that space it, it reminded me it 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 had a melancholy grandeur to it in mm. that the grand the melancholy was from growing up and yes. the end, you know, is sad because he's growing up, and that yeah. was inevitable. But it reminded me of the end of the house at Pooh Corner, where he's going away to pro- to boarding school and explaining to Pooh why he won't be around anymore, and that's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And also in the Jungle Book, where Mowgli is leaving to go back to the human world. And again, they're both really sad, but they're written from the point of view of, of growing up's really sad. You don't well, get to be a child anymore. that sort of theme gets explored in Toy Story 2 as well, I believe. <laughs> absolutely. Where and that's Andy's a great getting too old for the kids. And it's a similar that's an absolutely sort of great children's yeah. story yeah, as yeah, well. a similar story sort of thing. Um, yes, yeah, so, so it's called The Graveyard Book, and I totally didn't spot the Jungle Book reference at all until way afterwards when I was researching notes. But it, it essentially follows that very similar form. It's, it's outcast human child raised by 
strange creatures um, and told it as a series of small self-contained short stories which mm-hmm. take place I, I, I can't remember from Jungle Book it's Mowgli growing up over a long period of time where that all happens sort of fairly randomly but certainly the, the Graveyard Books chapters are sort of paced I think there's eight chapters and they, they take place roughly every two years of Bod's life yeah. and the, it opens in media res as it were it opens with the man Jack who is painted as this really sinister sort of I don't know professional assassin just just man with a knife and the knife itself gets lovingly described very early on and he's basically in in bod's house bod's a toddler in a crib at this point and has already murdered the parents and sister and is now looking for looking for bod to kill him and we get no reason why no no sort of explanation of this at all just just very visceral immediacy going on in that section and yeah. as, an, as an opener that is absolutely well i'd say terrifying yes. it is really scary it's and it is grim. absolutely designed to grab you you know i was looking at attention. the kid-friendly cover several times at the point of this and thinking hang on there's been some mistake I, here i think it's the second second uh, paragraph which i loved which is the knife had done almost everything it was brought to that house to do yeah both like, the blade and the handle were wet it's like it opens with the knife as the main beautifully character. yeah that's yeah, really yeah. nasty Without mentioning blood, it just mm. says that knife and the handle were, you know, the blade and the handle were wet. So I suppose as, perhaps as a kid, you might not fully interpret that as meaning what it means, but certainly as, as an adult reading that, it's, it's quite brutal. And here, here is a grown man with a knife looking for a baby in a crib to quite clearly, obviously, murder. And we get no mm-hmm. reason why or anything like that. It's just bam, straight into it. And yeah, I mean, that, if that's not a gripping opener, I don't know what is. But so Bod, the way well, I don't think he has the name Bod at this point, he just has no name at all. Um, he, he, he Just because of a sort of love of exploration and, and mischievousness, he's managed to clamber out of his cot and go scampering down the stairs, out of the house and down the road to the graveyard at the end of the street. Um, he doesn't realise he's being hunted or anything like that. He's just a, a wide-eyed child toddling. Um gets gets found by the the ghosts the the inhabitants of the graveyard um and this base of the graveyard basically forms the setting for the for the most of the rest of the book uh and there, at that point the various ghosts ah do they does does bod spot the ghosts or the ghosts just see him anyway and pick him up the ghosts spot him because he's an unusual thing to see in a graveyard he's yeah. young enough to see the ghosts and then his the pe- mum who's parents, just been murdered yeah, yeah. because she's just died can speak to ghosts comes and says can you look after sort of my temporary baby? angered yeah. spirit sort of thing and again um, there's more really hard imagery going on there as well the sort of taught, terrified mother clinging on past mm-hmm. death just because of fear of what's going to happen to her child yeah it's a very yeah. Neil Gaiman idea though, isn't it <laughs> it's, he's yeah. comfortable with these concepts yeah yeah so there's various motley collection of ghosts who've died in various periods of history across this graveyard they're all just doing their little graveyard business there's like a little small society there and in, in, in toddles this child and they don't know what to do with it they, 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 they're sort of arming and arming about whether to let the child go or, or hide it and take it take it as one of them and then the, the lady in grey turns up this mysterious sort of grey spectre on a, on a large horse turns up and tells them they should be charitable at which point they decide to keep the child and adopt it raise it in the graveyard they, this this then imbues the child with uh, the the freedom of the graveyard something like mm-hmm. that and it, a series of a series of ghost-like powers the ability to not be noticed to fade to see the dead that sort of thing and hear them 
And basically, see in the dark. Yeah, yeah, see in the dark and so on. And so basically, we, it sort of sets the stage for, yeah, a very Jungle Book style thing where the instead of animals, it's yeah, the animals of the jungle, it's, it's the undead and the, the monsters of the graveyard raising this child. And it's a, a generally a stable, caring and loving environment. The, the, the adoptive parents, Mr. and Mrs. Owens, who sort of died in sort of 1400s or something, they, they raise the child well. And uh, I think it, I think it grows up in the crib. And the, there's the, 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 we're introduced to the graveyard caretaker, a chap called Silas. Um, oh, who, 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 who seems to be something quite different at this point, uh, and and he volunteers to become the child's guardian to sort of go out and find regular live people food and so on and provide provide for the child and look after it. And then Silas, using strange mind hypnotism powers, makes uh, the man Jack, who'd followed the trail to the graveyard, go go a bit weird in the head and forget. That he forget the child was there and forget he was looking for the child and basically just sends sends the killer away. So at that point, you're already setting up for a kind of you know, reckoning, a kind of coming in age. I'm <laughs> thinking sheer calm again, but um, you're getting this sort of prepare pr- preparation for something you know quite climactic going on at the the far end of this story because presumably there's going to be a reckoning with this this killer. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the first thing you notice is that Neil Gaiman does, like Terry Pratchett, loves death. Death is a character in his own in their own right, and mm. death is always interesting if they're writing it. So you've got death with the capital letters in the Pratchett books, yeah. and in Neil Gaiman's stories, death is almost always a woman. So death in the Sandman books is this beautiful goth girl, and in this, it's the woman on the horse. Mm, yeah. She brings everybody to de- you know from one side of the uh, the curtain to the other. This is uh, a cameo role, though. I think she only yeah. appears oh, once absolutely. else in the book. Yeah, she's, and she's it's not really about her at all. But she seems kind, and mm. and I think if you're teaching kids about death, teaching them that death is kind is not the worst idea in the world. Mm. Um, so so I, that's that. It felt like yes, this is let's have death for kids. Let's have death for kids is on a horse because that's cool and kind. Yeah, because I mean, like I say, if your your four year olds listening to an audiobook in the car, one of the first questions they're going to be is, "What is a graveyard?" And from there, mm-hmm. things are going to get awkward and 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 probably quite complicated. But uh, you know, yeah, it's approached with a sort of fairly neutral and compassionate sort of angle to it all. There's not you know the terrifying skull with the scythe, yeah. you know, or, or just senseless the- senseless absence for no yeah. reason at all. As soon as the kid was sort of taken into the graveyard i stopped worrying about him from then on i was never worried about his health i knew he'd be all right till the end of the book for the first chapter you're worried because mm. you know it, jack real... could be the star of the book and therefore mm-hmm. you know this baby could be dead like everyone else and as soon as they th- that was sort of okay nobody is the focus or they called him nobody yes i wasn't worried through all his other adventures because it felt like a cosy children's book. It's a well, bit it, like it sort of Christopher from, Robin isn't in danger when he meets the bear, you know? Yeah. It sort of moves from a kind of horrifying serial killer story straight into a kind of dreamlike fantastic tale at that point. And yeah, exactly. You got you, you relax, you think you settle down, you think, oh okay, this will be all right. And it's it's probably not it's not until we get much later in the book when there's some adventures outside in the real world again. And it's always always the real world that's the terrifying place, not the graveyard. Sort of that that sort of polarity sort of persists all the way through. But I think that's writing for children. You know, home is safe and the outside world is scary. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly how kids understand the world. 
and I did love the way that um, Neil Gaiman dis- just uh, the occasional sentence, which is wonderful. The descriptions on the the gravestones. I sort of want Neil Gaiman <laughs> to write a note for my gravestone. So every and, time they pass a gravestone, there's a brackets and, and a quote yeah. with what the, the actual quote on the gravestone is, and some of them are really quite quite humorous. Yeah, but my favourite of all wasn't on a gravestone. It the line was uh, there were people you could hug. And then there was Silas. Mm-hmm. Thought, yep, that, 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 that's a lovely line. <laughs> so, John, what did you reckon of the setup then? Did that get you interested? Or? Well, throughout the entirety of it, as it, yeah, it's building up to this really intriguing world where you know, it's just everything slightly beyond normality and out there. The, the classical fantasy, you don't really know what's going on kind of thing. Well, so it's a sort of persistent game and three theme through pretty yeah. much everything he writes. This other world that we, we don't quite know about, and he's getting incredibly good at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he manages with very little effort to make a uh, a world which is just really compelling, and you want to know about it. I found myself sort of quite tantalised and, and sort of a little bit frustrated with with the lack of of much more examination and exploration. There's a lot of very very interesting but thrown away hooks, and as we go through yeah. the, the stories, well, there's mm. one thing that really stands out to me, which we'll cover at the end mm. when certain things have been revealed. But mm. uh, I actually liked the idea that it didn't go into too much detail. Yeah, there are these places and these people who do things, but you don't know what they are because. The kid never really wants to know or needs to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I suppose could, in context, yeah. I, I, I think other writers would have gone out of their way to explain everything and give you pages and pages of exposition <laughs> and say, this is where this place came from. This is where this town came from. All of that. Sort of turned it into a D&D source book. Yeah, yeah. and he knows he doesn't need to because that's mm. not the story he's telling. Yeah, yeah, there can be a there can be a, a virtue in in not explaining everything in in excruciating detail. Yeah. I think some, another- somewhere there's a happy medium. I'd found myself wanting to know more, but I suppose that's the point. Yeah, yeah. I think the the ideal is you want more at the end of it, and you mm. don't get it. Not had so too your imagination much, yeah. it does actually give you a lot of uh, imagination freeform to just come up with other things. Mm. And the other thing is, it's quite an achievement to have a small child who isn't monumentally irritated oh yeah, yeah. It's, it's quite brilliant how well he has this kid who is in a weird weird situation but even when he does the wrong thing you're still on his side you don't you know you know it's wrong you, it's a serious you, you man like who, him yeah, yeah. You, you you don't find irritating you don't want to see bad well, things happen to when he does wrong he admits he does wrong quite quickly and realizes it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <clears throat> So, so, so what follows then is it's basically a series of chapters, each of which works pretty well as a sort of self-contained little story in its own right, very much like the the, stru- the narrative structure of the Jungle Book itself, which is again divided into various small stories. Uh, so the second one, so chapter two, is the the new friend. This is basically Bod's now about two or so, two or three. <clears throat> And he's, he's basically living on this graveyard, sort of effectively haunting it, but learning to get quite good at not being noticed, but uh, bumps into a small child who's out wandering on the common with their parents having a picnic and then basically makes friends. Um, then they decide to explore one of the oldest graves and they come across some terrifying, terrifying uh, screaming apparition and, and a, an ancient tomb that goes back sort of thousands of years, the bottom of which is uh, a thing called the Sleer, which is this sort of disembodied, barely 
imperceptible giant snake thing, which is guarding a series of artifacts, a knife, a brooch, and a cup, um, in, in, in expectation of the return of the master and keeps asking all sorts of awkward questions about it. And of course, obviously, you know, the, the, the obvious problem, you know, apparently somebody died in there, but it turns out they just, they couldn't see down the stairs and tripped and fell. But the, 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 the obvious danger, which, which surprisingly Bod picks up on and doesn't, doesn't go through with is, is taking the trinkets on the, uh, on the, uh, the pedestal there. And, uh, this, the child, the, the, the friend Scarlet, uh, is, is missing for so long that the police get called and then they get, when, the, when, when she comes back and tells the parents where she's been, she's only like three or four as well. They, they pass it off as an imaginary friend. Uh, and then shortly after the, uh, the child and her family moved to Scotland because, uh, disturbing influences and so on. This one, this one, it didn't, didn't, there was a little bit of exposition about, you know, graveyard life and so on, but there wasn't, wasn't a lot going on. This just definitely felt like a sort of setup for something else. That would happen later, which, as it turns out, was the case. But it's also a simple story because it's mm. being told about a two-year-old or a four-year-old. Yeah, yeah. And the expecting. stories get more complicated when he's 10 or 12. So it makes sense that this would be a fairly simple story at this mm. stage. Mm. Yeah, there is that sense as they go through the, the sort of thoughts and, 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 and things that Bod gets involved in and is doing become more complicated in, in, in a good sort of pace to match his actual ageing through the mm-hmm. story, which is, is very skillfully done, yeah. So then there's the chapter three, which I think is probably the first one I quite enjoyed, was the, the Hounds of God, which is basically where Silas has to go away. Silas, who's the... Uh, we're, now, we're now fairly sure that Silas is actually a vampire, uh, and, and a proper vampire too, none of this sort of, you know, lost boys or sparkling nonsense. Yeah, there's no sparkling with Silas. No, no, he's not a sparkly man. He's this very sort of... Uh, have a sort of staid presence that uh, is, is, is impeccably p- correct and precise at all times. I got this sort of Jeeves feel off of him as well, but also, <laughs> also, yeah, a sense that, that this was actually this is something really powerful that is just yeah. quietly getting on with his, his own thing and biding the, his time. The first hint was sort of something along the lines of um, he didn't know what banana tasted like. Silas only ate one thing, and it wasn't banana. <laughs> Um, and he lives. He lives in the in the abandoned chapel in the middle of the graveyard. And he's a sort of. He's not actually one of the ghosts, but he's sort of regarded as you know a, a good sort and and a caretaker of the place. Um, but he has to go away on a mysterious errand, and so he arranges for a replacement guardian for for the, the duration. A tutor called Miss Lupescu, mm-hmm. a, a, a grey. A grey-haired old woman who, uh, who, who we as the wise grown-ups reading this story, immediately had suspicions about. But of course, Bob didn't. <laughs> anyone, anyone who knows Silas is probably not conventional, no. But um, so she sort of, she's quite a strict teacher, and there's a bit of sort of schoolchild type rebellion thing going on there. The lessons, and and so um, Bob runs off to explore the graveyard and go down the end. He's not supposed to go down, and he tr- stumbles across the the uh, the one unmaintained grave that every graveyard has, which turns out to be a portal to to Ghoulheim or something. I can't remember yes, what the place is called. The Ghoul Gate. The Ghoul yes. Place. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, and he gets captured by a bunch of ghouls who want to take him to the ghoul city and turn him into a ghoul, and and it turns out that... I I love they had all fancy names, and then you found out later how the ghouls named themselves, which is a brilliant concept. They they feed on the rotted corpses of the great and the good for their first meal, and then they take the name of the great and the good they've just eaten. So one of them's called the Mayor of London, and the other one's like King (laughs) so-and-so. The Emperor of China. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they don't seem necessarily malevolent or evil. They just think everyone should be like them. So they're 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 taking Bod off to the city, and he wants to turn him into a ghoul. There's a bit of threat and peril there. 
Well, the yeah, fact that yeah. when they get a bit fed up with him, their idea is to bury him white he rots a bit than eat him. <laughs> <laughs> They're not nice, no. But uh, Miss Lupescu comes in and rescues, uh, rescues Bod. Um, Thanks for his of- education, you see. Yes. He'd, he'd, she'd been teaching him how to say help in every language known to the And these night-born creatures like yeah. bad things that also inhabit the ghoul hell and are actually, on, actually good creatures who, who do come in and help him. And then Miss Lupescu rescues him in, in, in her actual werewolf form. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they get on much better afterwards it's a simple little tale it's it's but it sort of hints at a greater world and more interesting things out there but um it starts to suggest that there's more going on than just a child in a graveyard the mm. this is the beginning of the hints about why he was bod is important but why bod was attacked in the first place yeah and jumping forward a little bit one of my favorite little it's just a couple of sentences my i loved the story of Miss Lupescu and Silas and their two friends who are a, an Efreet mm. and a, 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 mummy. a mummy and a yeah. mummy uh, who are doing a, basically a D&D adventure to, to <laughs> rid the world of evil. There's some and, sort of meanwhile elsewhere type thing going on, yeah. And, and, and there's four of them and a pig. Because the mummy's got a pig under his arm, who he thinks is lucky and keeps him alive. And sort of the, the others are looking at him like he's mad, and then one of them goes down, and then uh, there's only three of us now, and the pig, and the pig. But, look, yeah, she and Miss Lupescu growls, and he, uh, why do you why do you care about the pig? It's lucky. What, what, and she doesn't sound convinced. Did Haroon have a pig? Haroon has been killed. Simple. It's it's lucky. I had it. Haroon didn't, and Haroon's dead now. Brilliant. It's brilliant. It's just I love that little, just that little comic story. Um, mm. It's it's a it's a work. I know and that is a work of genius, and it's only about twenty lines, but it's a great story in itself. D and D should always be like that. Slightly insane. <laughs> Why have you got a pig? Wow. Slightly lucky, insane yeah. people. You know. I, yeah. I, it reminds me, for instance, of Tim running Ooh. around as. Uh, in uh, Guild Wars 2 with a chicken under his arm beating I, I everything up for an hour and a half yeah yeah it was a, it was a pick up a bull chicken you had to put it down somewhere else to complete a quest but it was just a chicken I thought I'd take it with me so I did mm. and spent the next hour not being able to use my weapon skills because all, all five hotkeys were locked up with a chicken but it was important to me yeah I can empathise with that yeah <laughs> But um, so this is the sort of uh, yeah exactly the first sort of real hints because Silas's absence he has to go away. There's this hints that there's bigger stuff going on that they sort of become more elaborate as we go through until eventually you get to the the reason why. So then we got the chapter falls the witch's headstone where Bod now now about eight or so I don't know he, he befriends the the ghost of, of a witch who was who's drowned and burned to death um, I think probably not even with any real proof just witch witch trial stuff um, and she the the, the more the more uh, socially acceptable ghosts have warned him off at that end of the graveyard and she has a reputation for being quite mischievous and so on but it turns out she's just sort of misunderstood and quite quite sad and cross because she doesn't even have a headstone to, to mark her place. So Bob decides to get in, get it in his head to go and uh, sort that out, to go and get a headstone for her. Of course, he hasn't got any money or possessions, so he goes down to the Sleer's grave tomb thing and takes a bracelet uh, brooch thing, takes it out into the real world to to a pawnbroker's shop, because Bod hasn't got much of an understanding of how life works in the real world, takes it to the pawnbroker. The pawnbroker immediately identifies it as some pricelessly ancient relic and, and, and tra- traps Bod in the... Uh, 
in the back room and locks him in while he contacts some some sinister associates and so on. And I think there's some hint there that basically this pawnbroker has got the card of the man Jack from, from yeah. the first bit. And there's, Jack turns probably out on, to be more than simply a murderer. Not, not just a murderer, a highly influential and connected murderer on, on some kind of greater purpose or business. With mystical, uh, magical powers. Mm. And this, so this, the pawnbroker's, I mean, not only about handing Bod over to the man Jack, but uh, the, the the disembodied witch manages to come along in spirit form and haunt Bod and help him escape and they scarper back to the graveyard. It's sort of a taste of the real world's threats and perils there. And he does manage to get uh, he does manage to get a grave for um, for the witch in the end. Lisa, yeah. Lisa Hempstock, yes. What happens to the pawnbroker? Does the does he end up He ends up at the dance later? Yeah, the 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 unconscious and the the Slayer warns warns Bod that it always returns, and it does, mm. but I can't remember how. <laughs> Bob picks it up and takes it back, I think. Uh, um, right. Because the leader advises him. And he also picks up the card, which could mystically summon Jack, and gives that to Silas. And, that, uh, and right. then explains to Silas what's going on, and Silas says, yeah, the person that killed you is still out there, and it's a bit scary out mm, there. That's, mm. that's why we keep you in the... Uh, so sort of in amongst the sort of magical adventures, we're starting to get more strands of you know the terrifying real world happening on, on that level as well. Then there's a diff- there's another chapter called the Dance Macabre, which is a bit a bit of a strange interlude. I think it's basically every every sort of eighty years or so, a particular flower blossoms in the graveyard and causes all the inha- all the living inhabitants of the town to sort of sleepwalk up to the graveyard and then engage in dancing with with the dead as well. Mm-hmm. And the the, the grey lady turns up as well uh, and that's about it really it's an interesting no, no, that's important that one because mm. that one explain is there to remind everyone that he's not dead he isn't one of them he's one of the living yeah so so all the dead people you know his family treat him differently on that day they sort of kick him out the the, the grave and uh, tidy it up for mm. the party and don't explain that there's going to be a party because it's not really to do with him yeah. both the living and the dead sort of forget about it after it happens yes and yes. the only people that remember are bod because he's sort of a bit living and a bit dead, of both yeah and silas who saw what was going on didn't get involved because he's neither living nor dead mm. um and uh, and won't talk about it because he's not sure what he saw because he's neither the living or the dead side of the of the dance hmm. so then, then we go on to oh there's this yeah the convocation section this interlude this is where we get a bit of a glimpse as to what's going on with the man jack and it turns out mm-hmm. that he, he's at some sort of what appears to be a kind of rotary club charity dinner type thing with a whole load of other people called jack uh, and they're all sort of in, in they're interspersed they're sort of giving out awards for philanthropy and stuff but meanwhile on the individual tables they're chatting about murders and global domination and so on and you get some sort of some sort of tantalizing hints that there is a kind of huge worldwide organization of the jacks of all trades of which mm-hmm. the man jack is is a member and he's facing some kind of censure because he hasn't managed to sort out this 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 child yet uh and apparently if this child is is rumored to be able to bring about the end of this jacks of all trades organization you don't really get much more than that so i i yeah it was an odd odd thing well, well, I, I think mystery that, evil basically mystery evil organization that uh, 
exists, what, to kill the child? The child will end their well, organisation? Well, that isn't really that get a, sort of the point at the end, so... Yeah, you don't really get a sense of what this, this organisation exists to do when they're not hunting toddlers, you know? Well, you get the feeling it's just generally the general bad global work evil. for everybody. Yeah. They're the people you hire to do things. Hmm. Yeah, they're sort of evil, mystical mercenaries who travel between mul- the multiverse, killing people for a living. Yeah, and, could be. And being named after various famous Jacks. Like there's, there's a Jack Tar and a Jack Sprat and a Jack, you know, whatever. Mm. Jack and a Jumping well, Jack Flash. Mm-hmm. There's no Jumping Jack Flash. <laughs> there's no you Jumping Jack Flash. Up. There should yeah. be a Jumping Jack <laughs> There probably is, but he probably died before the story started. <laughs> So then we back back to the next chapter six, which is so Bob decides that he's missing out and wants actually go wants to go to school, in the traditional sense that actual children do generally. But of course he is sort of you know part ghost and 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 has all sorts of weird problems to answer about you know where do you go each day and all that sort of thing. So he basically manages to argue Silas into letting him try it. And it has to keep himself really low profile by using his fantastic powers of fading and not being noticed and that sort of thing. And just starts turning up in classes at uh, at the local school. It starts to go well, but then he ends up getting getting um, set upon by two 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 class bullies. And because he can't help sort of stepping in and stopping this bullying, it manages to break the spell for those bullies and they start to notice him and then get a bit more obsessed about him and start trying to trying to ruin his life and of course he has, he has to he retaliates with the various supernatural powers which just exacerbates the problem and and it's all it's all very uh complicated stuff eventually ends up with him being arrested by the police uh, and almost taken in for questioning at which point the whole, the whole thing's likely to unravel quite badly uh, but then the police car hits hits a strange body in the road which turns out to be Silas who hypnotises them all and takes takes Spot back to the graveyard sort of lesson learnt kind of thing yeah and he learns that this is all a bad idea and he really shouldn't try and go into the real world yet he's not ready for it and the world, real world's not ready for him either. and it really hammers home the idea that the authorities in the real world won't be on his side because they are basically doing something as a favour to a pow- their powerful uh, uh, relation <clears throat> and that, the entire thing shouldn't have happened because no warrants no anything and it is just basically uh, as a favour I think one of the policemen is the uncle of one of the school bullies yeah, yeah, yeah who gets, right. gets called and in and stuff. her father is somebody important is it connected to the Jacks I can't remember but no no mm, no no just no. just the, just a it's bad just, thing. Just, yeah, just just one of the uh, the important people in the town, and therefore the the town is on his side. So that sort of ends Bod's sort of early attempts to try and live a normal life. He ends up mm-hmm. back in the graveyard, continue growing up. So then, chapter seven, which uh, sort of brings it all to a bit of a head. Really, he's what fourteen now at this point, something like that. And yeah, something like that. Yeah, Silas um, has gone missing. No, he'd be twelve, wouldn't he? Because chapter one, he's just been born. Ah, so then, it's every two years. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, Silas has gone missing, and I think this is where this sort of off the side thing with the uh, the, the pig is happening. Um, and the graveyard doesn't know what to do about Bod, and uh, but generally generally uh he's left to his own devices at the same time scarlet the, ch- the kid from much earlier has sort of moved back to the uh to the uh, the neighborhood and uh, 
and um, she bumps into a man in the graveyard who's doing rubbings of gravestones and doing local mm-hmm. history and stuff and they get on famously and uh, it turns out that um, Scarlet and Bod sort of meet up remember each other and so on uh, and the the graveyard rubbing chap uh, Mr. Frost uh, I spotted this see mm-hmm. the, the Mr. J. Frost um, it was a doing, bit obvious but yeah, it's do, a kid's book is doing um, doing local history uh, and and is and by coincidence is is, is rooming in the house that Bod initially escaped at the start and and invites Bod back to, uh, to 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 perhaps learn a bit more about what happened in this house which Bod sort of vaguely remembers uh, and then he does the big reveal tries to lock him in Bod uses his powers to escape and then they at meantime this chap's joined by four other jacks who turn up uh, and they all go chasing them off to the graveyard and there's a there's a there's a lot of running about and falling in holes and and being mm. terrified off and, and captured and, by ghouls and, it turns and things out, and it turns out those four jacks are the last jacks of the jacks of all trades mm. because the the gang of uh, reprobates that sort of look after bod have been slaughtering all the others the honor for, guard yeah yeah well, that's what I really like about this, because you know, they probably wouldn't have been doing that if Bod hadn't come along, because they're not actually mm-hmm. special people. They just are of their uh, worlds. And so the entire um, prophecy, which is this kid will come along and destroy everyone, all that in the, my favourite way of prophecies happens <laughs> because the prophecy exists and the people are trying to stop it happening. And by making it <laughs> yeah. stop happening... They've caused it to happen they bring harder, it yeah. About. And uh, I always like that, a good prophecy. <laughs> Self-fulfilling, yeah. So, yeah, Bod's involvement's relatively minor. He manages to give one of them the slip who falls into a, an open grave and breaks his ankle. I think he survives the end of it all. Then he manages to mm-hmm. trick a couple of them into the, the ghoul gravestone and they end up falling through it and into the ghoul dimension and carried off. And I then, don't think they survived. <laughs> they probably didn't survive. No. <laughs> and then the man Jack himself chases Bod down into the big ancient tomb with the sleer in it. And, uh, and of course, the man Jack, being, being a bit stupid and a bit greedy, immediately senses an opportunity when the sleer goes, are you my master? Because the Slear's main purpose is to keep is to find the master and keep him safe. And so uh, Jack says, "Yes, you, I'm the master. You must do as I say." And the Slear uh, incoils him, drags him through a wall, and that's the last we ever see of the Jack of Jack. In Frost, a way that has been obvious Jack. to everyone reading for a while. Yeah, yeah. That, that whole tomb is basically a trap that Bod has been carefully not tripping for the whole <laughs> book. And you could sort of think, "Yeah, this might come in handy again at the end." Meanwhile, of course, Scarlet sees all this happening as well, and is party to all this, and she's so freaked out by it all that Silas has to Silas returns and, and has to uh, mind wipe her a bit the old man in black red light thingy uh, and she goes away not knowing Bod and not remembering anything about it all and moving back to Scotland yeah they go back to Scotland again so um, <clears throat> which leaves the final chapter which is just a short one and is essentially a, a, a kind of Bod realising that he's, his, his powers of the graveyard are fading and he's growing up and, and his, he knows, everyone knows it's, it's time he's going to move on soon. So Silas, um, Silas produces a passport and some money for him uh, and off he goes with a, a, an unknown new life ahead of him with no, no threats of sinister men with knives. And there's a few hints over the previous couple of chapters in that uh, the, the witch girl who was mm. cl- close friends with him for a while he's getting old older and therefore turning into a young man yes. and she starts to avoid him because she doesn't want anything to do with young men that's where what got her into trouble in the first place mm, yeah. so people because everybody else in the graveyard never grows up they stay the same age as they ever were yeah so the when kids, they died the kids he played with when he was very young are now 
you know, still, still that age, still and he's be, yeah. ten years older. So it feels like time for him to leave, and it's it's really well written. I know it's a it's a sort of a slightly downbeat ending, but it's it, it felt inevitable. Yeah, it felt inevitable. You couldn't it really felt like the right a way much to end happier it. ending than that. No, I mean you wouldn't expect his parents to spring back to life or anything like that, no. or the whole the whole thing to have undone well, itself. It's the inevitable ending, isn't it? Because it's a kids' Ooh. book, and at the end of a kids' book, they always have start dead parents, then <laughs> always come. Yeah, always. <laughs> <laughs> I think okay. you're misreading some mm. children's books, but anyway, go on. <laughs> It must have been implied in a lot of them, yeah. Uh, no, no, they're, they're just adopted and haven't been told in those ones. Mm. Um, ah. And then, you know, goes through, has adventures. Well, think- at the end, normality. Get on with your life. It's fine. You've had your... Uh, li- life is to be looked forward to and enjoyed. Go and enjoy it now. Well, I think that sort of device... I mean, I sort of reading your notes there and you were saying something, something to do with the Great War there, but um, I think that, that, that literary device is you've got to get the parents out of the way and off the scene because they're just going to tell the kid not to have adventures and not to have fun. You know, you can't cut loose as a child with adventures if the parents are just lurking around the place the whole time. So so by whatever device, it could be dead parents or it could be, I'm thinking of the, the Narnia stuff, they're all sent to the country because of, you know, the Blitz and so on. So there are no sort of authoritarian parent figures around to, to sort of stump on everything and uh, well, in this case yeah the sort of the dead parents i found I, th- I found it a little bit incongruous though because what we have here is a world where everyone becomes a ghost after they die and they yeah. are there and doing their things and stuff and what has ghost seeing and talking to powers could he not go and visit his own real parents presumably they're buried somewhere well, and become ghosts in a different graveyard yeah but a different graveyard and he's mm-hmm. been kept in this graveyard it's that specific so one. he might no, be able he, to doesn't he escape from the pawn shop into another graveyard somewhere where there are some other people? Yeah, but probably not the modern graveyard that's sort of an industrial complex on the outskirts oh, of the yeah, town. Where the modern, or something. Yeah. Exactly, where the modern sort of people are buried. Mm. So, uh, you know, even the youngest of the people in the graveyard he's in are probably 100 or 150 years old. Mm. Sort of the So, yeah, that's why he never met his parents again. They, mm. they went on to other things. Yeah, elsewhere they they probably didn't know about this ruling on where you get buried and, <laughs> and such like when they were alive so they're probably buried in a different town because mm, they're buried where their parents are from or whatever who's going to decide where they get buried their parents i, I don't probably. know i'm sorry I, I they did that. make it very clear though <laughs> that you still get a ghost even if you're cremated oh, right. because oh. the witch was burnt yes i thought that burnt was very specific round. yes mm-hmm. <clears throat> Yeah. So, so overall, what do we think? So, the, the overall sort of pacing and delivery of it all. Enjoyable? Enjoyable read? I found it quite light, light definitely lighter going than most of the uh, the books we've done so far. I, I, I loved it. I, I listened to the audiobook, which is read by the author. And okay. one thing Neil Gaiman can do is tell his own stories. Mm. I he has a turn when it comes to reading a book which is just something that a lot of other authors do not have i remember the bbc four extra did did a good omens full cast thing a while back i think uh, peter saravanovich and mark heap as the ghost as as the demon and angel there and i think terry pratchett and neil gaiman both had cameos in there yeah. as the policeman when the car the car gets zapped by demonic powers and stuff and yeah they, 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 you, you could tell that gaiman was more comfortable with the role and yeah, pratchett always seems <laughs> weird when he turns he turned him yeah. up on one of the tv shows versions mm. and was really really uncomfortable perhaps not a not a, well, not a classically trained actor but then well, I don't suppose also, no also 
when that Good Omens thing was around, sadly, Terry Pratchett was already unwell. So, yeah. Mm. But um, Neil Gaiman first started writing this about 20 years before it was published for his younger son, who he saw sort of on his trike in a graveyard and that gave him the idea and then he started writing it and realized he wasn't a good enough writer yet so put it to one side and something other authors should learn (laughs) (laughs) and then came back to it years later kept on trying and eventually when i think his his youngest children were about the right age it pushed him into doing it again and Mm. he felt he was able to then write the story as as he wanted it to be so it's a good idea that you can quite work out how to do yeah that's a good tale and that's a good store author's story about his writing yeah but it does feel like yes he got this right he'd he's been working towards (sighs) this kind of story for a while the sort of the magic mystical there was a lot stuff of is, similarities yeah i yeah. spotted very very similar themes to a lot of gaming's other work neverwhere there was sort of aspects yeah. of that as yeah. well there's aspects of, of yeah coraline i think as well mm-hmm. and, and, and the sandman which was sa- sort of sandman the first stuff, thing you yeah. really came up with um so yeah he and i'm glad he read the book i'm gonna have to look for that now because it's i'd love worth- to hear i'd love to hear his version of it mm. But yeah, I love it too. I think it's it's an it is one of probably in two hundred years. This is the children's story from this era that will still live long, like Winnie the Pooh and Wind in the Willows, and you know the classic, the famous classic. Well, it's stories. essentially a retelling of the Jungle Book. Isn't yeah, it? I mean you got Silas as Bagheera, I think probably, and then Shere Khan <laughs> as the Man Jack, you know, and then mm-hmm. the various other you know, minor characters in the graveyard as as the various animals. Miss Lupesco as Car? I don't know, but you know there are definitely sort of <laughs> definite possibly you're pushing it a little bit far at that stage bit, but yes yeah, yeah. and it's it, you're right there is a similarity but the sort of there. various animal mentor figures replaced it's, it's not, one for one with creepy yeah. undead monsters you it's know? not a direct copy it's no. more inspired by yeah yeah, yeah the he, wanted to, and he wanted to, to have the same feeling and mm. therefore wrote this book it has the same feeling as the jungle book yeah and, which i haven't read in a while but again i, don't think book I've ever, I think i've oh, only ever seen the 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 cartoon the books are really good i I would recommend the first and second. I probably should books. have a go at that at some point. Yeah, just as a to round off my education. Well, we should push for that to win a retro Hugo. <laughs> a retro so Hugo. then you'll have to read it. Why not? This, well, this, so yeah, we come to the question: What's this doing in the Hugos? I mean, obviously, you know, we've seen Harry Potter win as well. They left a good book in. <laughs> There's not nearly enough laser swords or rocket spaceships or, or time travel in this book. But, uh, but yeah, it, but it's, it strikes me as a very un-Hugo book. And, yeah, you guys, I know you guys like them when they're like that. But <laughs> and, and you look at what it was up against. Those well, yeah, are very the famous writers. Year. So we've got Little Brother by Corey Doctrow that year. Um, and... Anthem by Neil Stevenson, your favourite author, John. Uh, we got Saturn's Children by Charles Stross and Zoe's Tale by John Scalzi. So a lot of those are, yeah, I, I don't know really much about those other. I mean, recognise the names, certainly the authors, but well, Cory Doctorow is quite well known now as a writer. Uh, well, he's he mostly lo- well known for Twitter, isn't he? He's sort of oh yeah, and, and <laughs> website, but yeah, yeah, he does a lot of younger uh, fiction, doesn't he? His stuff is, he does a lot of stuff aimed at younger people as well, I think. Mm. I think. I don't actually read an awful lot of his stuff. But yeah, there's no there's no sort of massively iconic titles in there that I go, oh, that, that should have won. Yeah, there's a Neil Stevenson who's usually okay, but it's not a book that really has made much of a mark. 
Yeah, I don't really know anything about Anthem itself. I mean, you know, it's, it seems perhaps a bit sour grapes or churlish to say that Neil Gaiman had an easy year that year, but I mean, that's entirely down to who, who else is nominating what else. But the, no, this certainly does deserve to win. But I just, I just, I don't see any any really strong, you know, crushing think, competition. Yeah, in, I think what it was list. is that Neil Gaiman had this sort of overwhelming sort of energy behind him. People loved the Sandman books from mm. years previously. He's a very popular man. Yeah. They're grown up and therefore they go to conventions and therefore they say, oh, I want Neil Gaiman to win a, a Hugo. So yeah. there was probably a lot of energy behind a push for him to win one um, that there wasn't for, you know, Neil so Stevenson because... I was the wrong, been wrong year. significantly before all the puppy nonsense really became a thing. Yeah. So, so this this would have been just the, the the prior small affair that the Hugos had been up to this, to this, this day and age. It was, it was also when Gamer was beginning to get really, really popular. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. What else, what else we got? Let's have a dramatic presentation long form for this year. We had Wally. That was the winner. Yeah. I like that film. That's, that's a good film. That's a brilliant film. Just, just yeah. the opening section. Yeah. Again, you could say uh, very much a, a kid-friendly film. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It did well. So that was up against The Dark Knight, um, Iron Man, Hellboy 2, The Golden Army, uh, Not and Metatropolis. Yeah, I don't know. Don't know. <laughs> Yeah, and the short form was Doctor Horrible Sing Along Blog, which I have yeah, seen. Yeah, love it. Uh, Silence <laughs> I'm in the not Library sure Forest. Oops, Silence in the Library Forest of the Dead Doctor Who episode. Uh, Don't care. Turn left Don't Doctor Who episode. Which is actually a good episode. Of Battlestar Who. Galactica. Which is Revelations. Was that one of the ones where they finally tried to explain what the hell was going on for yeah, the last it, five it, years? It was one of the Galactica's getting quite late on. We better give it all the awards. It's going away soon, mm. <laughs> and we um, still remember how good Thirty Three was. <laughs> and the episode it never really got better than 33 did it that was the best one like you know the second episode of the proper series it's just crazy it was the first wasn't it after the mm. pilot series yeah and the, yeah sort of went slowly downhill from there on really um the constant episode of lost i've never seen lost I'm speaking of going downhill after a uh, first yeah, oh, season yes, yes. lost lost <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that was that was the Hugo. Oh, there was all sorts of other categories, of course, but that was the I Hugo. I really can't argue with any of those winners. I mean, you've yeah. got the Graveyard Book, Wally, and Doctor Horrible Singer. Sing- <laughs> That's a, a cracking weekend, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good lineup. Yeah, do them all. So, yeah, summing up then, what do we think then, John? I think that uh, we like Neil Gaiman, and uh, he should write more books. He might have a bit of a talent. He should mm. consider writing another book. We'll probably get to American Gods, the uh, mm-hmm. 2003 winner, I think. Oh, I yeah, we exactly sort of been putting that off till after the TV show comes Yeah, because the TV show's out at the moment. Um, yeah, like we think it's out at the moment. I think it's out premiering in the US at the moment. Um, so you can find that on Stars with a Z if you're in the US. Uh, apparently it's on Amazon. about two weeks here, yeah. Amazon Prime for the rest of the world, apparently. Um, and apparently it's very good. It's got uh, Ian Lovejoy McShane as Mr. Wednesday. So, uh, <laughs> which I think might work. Um, but yes, we'll probably cover the actual book uh, in a future episode. So, but next week, next week for those playing along at home. Oh, next sorry, month. I've, I've skipped it. <laughs> over, sorry. Next week, oh, what's going on? Um, yes, Dr. T, what did you think of it? Obviously, you picked I, it. I did pick overall. it. I'm very glad I picked it. It's, it's, I would recommend everybody, whatever your age, read this children's book. It's really, really good. Yeah, and, I'd go with that. And it's a good entry into Neil Gaiman, because if you read this, you're probably going to like some of his other stuff too. Mm. Um, 
yeah, I just, yeah, it's my so overall. Overall, I enjoyed it as well, despite it being a kid's book. I, I found, I mean, I'm, I'm very much the, the doorstopper enthusiast of this, this podcast. So I found myself wanting more explanations and more depth and more detail, but, uh, and wanting it to be about another 400 pages long, but, uh, that might just be me. Very good though. Very good. Short and to the point and very good. So yes, as I was saying, uh, next week, month, uh, month, 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 next month, <laughs> give me more time to read it. <laughs> No, we're going to do one a week now, I think. We're not getting through these things fast enough. Um, well, actually, for me, it'll probably be next week because I've got still doing this Blinking Hugo nominee challenge for the 2017 lineup. Good luck with that. Yes. The Obelisk Gate, N.K. Jemison. It's a bit grim. Uh, spoilers there. So, yeah, anyway, uh, next time on this show, we'll be looking at the seminal 1985 winner, Neuromancer, by William Gibson. So I imagine we'll have lots to talk about there. So uh, with that, we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>